Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 7-27-2022, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we have this evening. We are so thankful for your grace, your mercy. We're thankful for those who are here and have taken time out of their busy schedules to hear your thoughts. We pray for wisdom as we do, that we will be able to take what is heard and apply those things to our spiritual lives here on earth. We thank you for those who um, helped to make this possible, this conference that we have, Word is Truth. Uh, I always say, Father, I can't do it by myself. So we thank you for their presence, their attendance. We pray for the Sneed family as we continue to think about uh, the loss of their loved one. And for all of those who, uh, who are still mourning and grieving uh, the loss of loved ones. And we have just come out of a pandemic season. Well, we're, we're still in it, but uh, it's been a tough few, last few years for uh, those uh, who have lost loved ones. So we pray for them as well this evening. Father, we, uh, as we open your word, give us wisdom. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Amen. So we are studying in the book of Romans, as you know, chapter 11. And we're looking at verse 16 this evening. I'll read it. It says, If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So we're going we're to try to understand that tonight. Uh, that's, that's our quest. Whether we get through it or not, I don't know. I think so. It shouldn't be too bad. <clears throat> Let's go for it. Um, in your notes, we continue the thought that Israel is not in a hopeless place. Their failure does not define God's foreknowledge as inadequate. As we saw, they will eventually succeed. Therefore, we are not to see them as failing. I'm sorry, we are to see them as failing, but not as failures. When we fail, we should look at why it happens and understand how God views failure in the light of his eternal plan. Even though Israel may consider the church as an enemy, we are not to see them as our adversaries, but as part of God's eternal purpose. So hopefully this <clears throat> will help us understand just a little bit more of God's perspective on Israel. Let's get into point one. The first phrase is, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy. Well, we have an analogy from the Old Testament to consider. That's in Numbers 15, <clears throat> 18 through 21. So we'll look at that quickly. Numbers 15, 18 through 21. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land to which I am taking you, and you eat the food of the land, present a portion 
as an offering to the Lord. Present a loaf from the first of your ground meal and present it as an offering from the threshing floor. Throughout your generations to come, you are to give this offering to the Lord from the first of your ground meal. So this is where we, I guess Paul, not we, but Paul gets this analogy that he is creating. And we're, we're going to talk about the first fruits, the branches, the olive root, and there's a lot. The dough here, the dough is the first fruits, is the reason why we're in numbers. But there's a lot of analogies. And we should note, um, in point B, as we consider what the analogy illustrates, that's the important part we should recall the context from which we came. This should guide our thinking. So many people, I'm just going to pause for just a minute to help people understand uh, this one point I think is very important. Many people read the Bible as though it were an Eastern, as though it was Eastern philosophy, religious material. What do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, what I'm trying to say is people look at historical uh, documents and things like that that are religious material as though it were just, you know, you could take a phrase, any phrase, and that phrase has life. Right? It, it can apply to your life in many different ways. And Different people will look at that phrase different ways. So they'll, they'll read a scripture or, or a passage in some sacred book. And then people sit around and they start contemplating what it means. And there's no guide on to say, no, this means exactly this. It, it is just whatever it does for you, that's good. If, if it can apply to your life in some kind of way that... Is helpful, then you can take it that way as truth. That is not how we read the Bible. And the Bible, my, many people would say, oh, it's inspirational. And it is. It is. I wouldn't say it's not. There are certain passages, especially the, the Psalms and passages, the doxologies, where the writer just goes and begins to... Uh, magnify God or his works or something. And yes, it is breathtaking to hear those passages. But the Bible, first of all, is instructional. There is a context to what is being taught. It is not like you could say anything and it's okay. We are not there. When we believe the Bible, we are believing the narrative of God. It's what he tells us about himself. It cannot be anything. It is specific information. When God tells us, this is what happened, this is who I am, that's not going to change. Uh, we have that verse. It says, I do not change. He's immutable, is what we theologically call that. So the information in the Bible cannot be manipulated, cannot be twisted to, uh, to make uh, something out to be what we want it to be. 
It cannot suit every person regardless of their religious belief. It doesn't. In the Bible, there is what we would call right and wrong. I know children today are in some sort of place where we don't tell them they're wrong. You didn't lose. Don't feel bad. Well, bottom line is the Bible is not fixed that way because it's fixed based on God's reality. And we do not measure up to God. And so God has to let us know. No, you're wrong about something. You're, no, that's not the way it happened. This is the way it happened. And let me give you the record of how you ought to see this. So the Bible is not a book of philosophy. It's about context. It's about instruction. You've got to figure out what is, what is being taught, and you have to follow what is the relevant points being made. So the, I don't mean that you can't have fun with the Bible. or that you, And I know I've seen the people do a lot of things with the Bible. But first of all, the Bible is a book of instruction. we got a lot to learn, especially about this God that we are worshiping that we have not seen. Or, you know, this is, we have only seen his actions, his creation. So he has a lot to tell us. And we have a lot to learn. So it's why the Bible says it's good. The word of God is good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now you won't find that in Eastern philosophy material because everybody could be right. What do you mean correction and reproof? What do you mean? They could take it any way they want. Not with the Bible. Not with God. I'm sort of glad God is like that. I'm glad he's not any kind of way you want it. You know, whatever you say, well, then we make ourselves to be God. And, and whatever his word is, is just like clay in our hands. But it's the opposite. God is the one who made us. We didn't make God. He tells us what is and is not. So I just say that to say why an introduction at this point is because we must allow the context to drive our thinking. We cannot just take a verse and then say, oh, well, it must mean this because this is what I believe. No, we have to follow what the context is. Context is what the writer is talking about. What the writer is talking about, well, the sentences. The, the phrases will fit into what the context is. Okay, so to make that point, so let's, let's, let's get into the thought of this. Um, so we considered, we're going to consider the analogy and all of that is to say, according to the context. <laughs> point C, dough offered as first fruits. So there is a principle. Here. And when we read about the principle of first fruits, where do we get this from? Obviously, we get it from Israel. Uh, first fruits, remember, feast of first fruits or Pentecost is very important in our understanding because that's when the church began on the day of Pentecost. 
So uh, the dough offered as first fruits, it's a principle here. And what does this principle mean? Principle of first fruits, it's an offering of the part which represents the whole. So it's just, it could be a small part, but this part represents the whole. So if they offered uh, part of their grain, and in this case, when you enter the land, he says, when you, you know, go ahead and make grain and the first loaf, you are to dedicate to God. And this is what he means. If part of the dough offered is first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. We're, we're going to get to all of it. But that's the point that is being made. And we're, we're going to understand that as we're understanding the principle of first fruits and why Paul used it and how it applies or how he is trying to apply it to what we are, are going to be talking about in the context. So uh, the dough offered, it's, remember, first fruits is always that principle. It's just a part offered to God. God didn't say, offer me everything you have made or have grown or have... No, that's not what he says. He says, offer the first part to me. When you offer that first part to him, what you are saying is, we not only dedicate this to you, but we recognize that we it, all of it comes from you. And we are dedicating all of what we do. Everything we have is yours. By that first fruit offering, that is what you're saying. So uh, this is the idea. And we say principle. Okay, let's get into uh, this, some of the, there's five thoughts about this. God called Israel, this is the first point, God called Israel to a special purpose. Then it is a purpose ordained of God. And I say if, it's really since. Since God called Israel to a special purpose, then it is a purpose ordained of God. So a lot of times we don't think about it that way. We think, well, Israel failed. They're disgusting. That's what we want to say about some of the things they did. In fact, we could find some of God said that about himself. But just notice, if God called Israel to a special purpose, and here we're using that if-then logic again, then it is a special purpose ordained of God. That's a point I want to make. It is a special purpose that's God ordained. So point two, if the purpose is holy, and it is, it will require that it be performed by those who are also holy. So that holy here means set apart to God for his special purposes. And that's what holy means. If it says we're holy, what does it mean? It means that we have a special purpose before God. It, everybody else in this regard is not holy. It doesn't mean that uh, they they may not be saved or something. It just means that they don't have a special purpose before God. Israel was called. There were saved people before Israel came on the scene. Israel is not the first saved people in the world. Salvation was happening from Adam and the woman in the garden. When they were the first people that were lost, salvation is from the foundation of the world. So we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about God having a special purpose for the nation. 
And that is what we've been dealing with in the context. It starts out, it, well, I shouldn't say starts out. It continues to talk about Israel it's heavily in 8, 9, 10, and now 11. We're dealing with, Paul is getting right down to the root of the problem. And he's laying it on the line. So um, when I say uh, it needs to be performed by people who are also holy, meaning saved people. Right? Saved people, even though, as I said, we're not talking about salvation in particular, but in order for us to accomplish God's purposes, we must accomplish it as those who are saved, on who, who God has ransomed, who have believed in the Messiah to come. And that's true for us, too. Now, if, if There's a scripture that comes to mind. Actually, it's not in the notes, but... It's John chapter 4 and 23 and 24. We used to quote this quite often. Uh, so it says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Notice there's a special way for us to worship. Uh, we don't talk much about it, but we need to. We need to, to deal with the fact that worship requires us being filled with the Spirit according to God's eternal purpose for us to worship Him, because that is what He's about. God is a spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. You can't worship in spirit and truth unless you're saved. You can't worship in spirit and truth unless you understand the mystery, the hidden things of God that now are revealed only by the spirit, the spirit of truth. There's no other way you can get this information. You can read the Bible and not get this information. It is only through the spirit of truth that enlightens us to this information. So, I'm saying for Israel the same thing. Israel, for them to function as according to God's special purposes, they had to be set apart to God for his special purposes. They needed to be saved. Point three. God had a special purpose in mind when he called Israel. He did. And he called them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Those are the patriarchs. And Jacob eventually became Israel. So God had a purpose in mind. He had a way in which he called Israel to the earth stage. Point four. God's call, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable without repentance he won't change his mind doesn't matter what Israel has done if Israel fails then God fails God's not a failure he understand as we said in the last uh, week lesson that God already foreknew Israel he saw them before time began imagine that God knew Israel before time began. He already understood all of their failures. He understood all of their stumbles. Right? 
that this he even understood how they would crucify the Messiah. And he still did not cast Israel away. His gifts and his call are irrevocable. God's plan will not fail. That's what that is to say. Point five, note an analogy of first fruits of the Spirit is used for the church. We already know, we have talked about it. We, God has, Paul has used this analogy for us. I'm just going to read it here. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, there it is, uh, first fruits of the Spirit, play on words because the Spirit came at Pentecost. And that's what he means by the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And we already have gone through Romans 8. There's a lot, and, and, and there's going forward and backwards that we could read. So many exciting things in Romans 8 because it's really dealing with our calling, <clears throat> the special election that is the church, us this new age, this new dispensation. There's a lot to talk about. But we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit has come in a brand new way at Pentecost. Jesus has predicted it, prophesied about it, talked about what would happen when he came, so forth and so on in his discourse in John 14 through 17. So... Um, it's important that, just to note, first fruits is also used for us. It's not used in the same way as it is for Israel. We're going to see that. Point D, we must be careful about maligning Israel because this could spill over into maligning God who foreknew them. And that goes right to Romans 11.2. So uh, 11.2, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now that there, that there is a word that stems back before time began. God foreknew Israel. And if I were to ask you, what does it mean to foreknow? Or what does it mean that God foreknew Israel or foreknew the church? Uh, I could ask, that's one of the questions I would ask, uh, Maybe we might get that later. What does that mean? And I hope you will give this answer. It is not God's omniscience. It is those who would play a part in God's eternal purpose, who would play a specific role in God's eternal purpose, i.e. Christ, Christ is said to be foreknown, the church, and Israel, or I should put it in order, Christ, Israel, and the church, are said to be foreknown. So having that foreknowledge stems back to something God did before time began, before the universe was created. It, re it relates us to what God was planning in the very creation of all things. So we know foreknowledge is a huge part of that where it says, uh, he foreknew us, meaning he saw you from eternity past. And he chose you for whatever 
part in the plan he wanted you, or whatever role in the plan he wanted you to play. So that is, a, this, now we are seeing this word about Israel. So God saw Israel. Israel will succeed. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. He did not. So uh, that's an important point to make. Point E in our notes, we'll get into it. There is balance needed. And I give this scripture for balance because we know Israel failed miserably. Yes, they did. And we, we don't uh, feel it is bad to talk about their failure because it's right there in the scriptures. I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its manager, uh, the, the donkey its owner's manager. But Israel does not know my people who do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They, are for, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. So notice, <clears throat> there's, even though there's a lot said that is rough language to Israel, and if you kept reading Isaiah chapter 1, you will get much more, much more. But um, just enough for you to see that God here is announcing the Holy One of Israel. So there is a special purpose in that. Even though, why even care about it? Notice, he doesn't talk about the Amalekites and the Philistines and all of the Jebusites and all the different ones. The, I heard he said the Amalekites. I must be picking on them or something. But he doesn't pick their nations to talk about what they're doing. And why they have done this and why they haven't done that. Because they don't have a special calling before God. Israel does. Not only did God tell them who he was, but he gave them his laws and has revealed himself to them in very special ways. He showed himself to them in signs, wonders, and miracles. So he birthed them. And brought them out of Egypt, made them a nation, right? All of that, and God is saying, my Holy One of Israel. So he, he, not only does he chide them, but he also recognizes who uh, he is with regard to Israel. Israel will succeed, as we already said. We'll continue this thought. <clears throat> Point number two. So the thought is, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. So, uh, so we already said this principle, first fruits then represent a part of the whole batch, which God sees in Israel being fully restored. And why do we say fully restored? And that's Revelation twelve seventeen. Let me just read that. I know we read it a couple times. Uh, 12, 17. 
It says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to testimony about Jesus. So we know Revelation twelve seventeen does talk about Israel. If you look at the whole context, it starts off talking about Israel. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon and so forth and 12 stars and all that, right? That's Israel in the very beginning of Revelation 12. And Israel's destiny is laid out for us there. And their success as well. So um, God sees Israel. Right. So if the first fruits is holy, and what does he mean by the first fruits? The first offering to God of Israel, just like he talked about numbers, where he says, when you come into the land, the first of your grain offering, you know, when you, you do this meal and make bread, the first loaf goes to me because I'm the one who made all this possible for you. That is in recognition of me, God is saying. And I want you to give that as an offering. And it helps you understand who I am with respect to who you are. So that, it was important that they see it that way. B, point B. It's a reminder we are discussing how Israel failed, but not to the point of destruction. During their failure, God used this time to bring about some good, and that is the church. And, and that Galatians 4.4, 4, so the church didn't just happen in frustration. Right? We could, some people have seen that, right? They said, oh, well, God, Israel failed, so then, okay, what was plan B? God turned to the church, and then, okay, that's where we are now. That's not what it says. It says, verse 4, but when the time, the set time, notice, the set time had fully come. So does God have a watch? Yes. He knows. He, no, he does not. He doesn't need a watch. He already knows what time it is. And when the set time had fully come, when it was time, it's like when you say, is it time to go to work? Yes. Because uh, we look at our watch and we realize, right? But God is saying, okay, it's time for me to bring forward my son and Verse, I should have four and five. Let's just read the whole thing first. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And he's not talking to Israel here. He's talking to the church. That we might receive adoption to sonship. So, our coming, the revelation of the mystery, all of that, is not because, oh, God was, in, was frustrated with Israel, so now he just turned to it. That is not the case. We don't have a beginning based on, you know, the errors of Israel. We have a beginning based on the foreknowledge and planning of God. As it says, when the set time had fully come when it was there, when the, the, the big hand was on one and the other hand was on the other. God says, okay, it's time. Let's bring forward the church. Let, let's, let me reveal what was in my heart from eternity past, from before time began. Let me re reveal the mystery. And that's when we began. That's how we started right there. 
Galatians 4, 4. So don't think of it in terms of frustration. Point C, God's holy purpose brought about his holy nation. So God had a specific point in time for Israel as well. He had a set time for him to bring about his holy nation on the scene. So he had a special purpose. Obviously, if he's talking about foreknowledge, predestination, and all of that, those words were not exclusive to the church. Those words first began to be used for Israel. And and as he gives us that information, we are to know that God had Israel in his planning. We talk about a lot. For he chose you in him before the creation of the world. Well, we're talking about church. That's Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. And we, man, God knew us before the time, before earth was created. Before the universe existed. God already planned to have us as sons. That's the role he wants us to play. Now, well, same thing for Israel. It, those, as I said, those words are not exclusive to the church. So the same thing happens for Israel. He chose them before time began. They're part of what we would consider God's eternal purpose, the revelation of it. They're part of it. Because without them, God's eternal purpose would not have been able to be accomplished. So it's important that we, that God that we see that God not only has his own purposes, but we can see that in time, man's free will coexists with God's eternal purpose. We see how that works. It's kind of interesting to us, but from God's perspective, he already saw that. He already knew when the right time was, and he chose it. So, uh, let's see. We were we were in point C. God's holy purpose brought about His holy nation. If it's, if it's a holy purpose, a purpose that God has set specially set apart for His own use, certainly He would have a holy nation. The holy nations, the holy purpose fulfilled. It is fulfilled in a renewed, restored, and believing servants that is Israel. So that's the the way we have to see this is God needed Israel to be believers. Uh, if they're going to preach God's holy purpose to the world, and what was that essentially? If we just break it down and say, what was Israel supposed to be telling them? To keep the Sabbath? No. To eat a certain way? No. It, they were supposed to be telling them about grace about substitution, how God can reconcile them to himself through this means. And for God's righteousness to be upheld, it would have to be through this way. God does not make exceptions. Now that is where God will not bend at all when it comes to his righteousness. That is essentially what his character is. He's good. He's upright he's fair he's you know he's forthcoming when it comes to who he is so that is important 
So let's keep going in our notes. We'll get more as I think we're going to be able to finish this. Uh, maybe. Yeah. So point three. So this the whole phrase, if part of the dough offered as first roots is holy, then the whole batch is holy. Not the, far, the first fruit, the dough, is where God has a special purpose. And he, he begins to form the nation Israel through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac. And he had a purpose. He didn't just call Abraham and say, Abraham, what are you doing? I'm shooting the breeze. Well, let's shoot the breeze together. Let's talk. No, he had a reason for calling Abraham. I know people call people on the phone today, and they just don't really have a purpose. They just want to talk. They, they don't really, finally you get around to like, well, there's a reason for my call. Even though we did all this talking, there's a reason for my call. Well, for God's call, there's a specific reason. He's not just on the phone gabbing. He has something to tell us. And that's how we all have to see this. We have to understand this. God has a specific purpose. So this last part, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So now look. This, the dough, first fruits thing, is an analogy, but it also is an analogy when we talk about uh, the root and the branches. And we're going to get more into the root and the branches later, but just to note, the root and the branches mean the same thing as the, the dough and the whole batch. That's, these are two analogies and one verse given to us to help us understand this point, right? Let's get to it. Point A, since the root is holy, it's certain, and it's certainly, and I should say it certainly is. It's, I've already put the word since there instead of if. Since the root is, and nobody's questioning God's holy purposes. Like, what, what is God's purpose? Everybody would say, oh, that comes from God. Obviously, it's holy. It's special. Nobody would say, well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. No, it's since the root is holy, it certainly is holy, then so are the branches. That is the point that should be made. So Israel is holy. Now, of course, wayward Israel, we're going to find out that there were problems with Israel. We're going to talk about what they are briefly. Uh, we can't go through all the litany of problems that they've had we're going to talk about the root of it. So uh, the statement in, its, uh, in and of itself says that. It says, if the root is holy, certainly, most certainly are the branches. That's the logic in what Paul is saying. Most certainly the branches are. So he's saying, just like we read earlier, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. His call is a holy calling. And he's not going to withdraw the holy calling. It's irrevocable. He saw to the end of the holy callings. Point B, let's get to it. The root. What is the root? It's God-ordained, called, elected, foreknown, predestined Israel. He predestined Israel to a holy purpose. If I read Romans 9, 4, and 5, we see some of it. We've read this already. Hopefully these verses will be something you remember, especially as we think about Israel. Verse 4, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. 
and from them the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God overall, forever praised. Amen. So, wow, what a doxology for Israel. And we're, we're just getting ready to talk about them. And uh, Paul did not see Israel as the blight of human history. He did not see them as the horror of some of the things that they had actually done. He saw God's purpose for them. He saw God's calling. And that's why he could write words like this. When they persecuted him directly, they chased after Paul. They said, we will not eat or sleep until the apostle Paul was dead. That's what they vowed, many in Israel. And then it wasn't just some rogue group. The Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and those leaders got involved in this plot. Well, we know that their hands were not clean. All we have to do is look at how they treated Jesus. We saw that. So no, but notice, what is Paul extolling here about Israel? He's trying to show you of their very special purpose before God. And hopefully we see that as well. Point C. So, so are the branches. So if the root is holy, in this phrase, so are the branches. God's ideal for Israel can only be fulfilled by those who were, are, or will be believers in the Messiah, that is, Christ. Now, this is an important point. If I were, if I were you, I would highlight this point because it is one of those points that say why Israel failed in the first place. Why? What happened? Why? I mean, they they, they were the witnesses and they, of of such miraculous signs and wonders and such rich culture from God, and yet they rejected their Messiah. I want to read Acts 7, 51 and 52 uh, just as a reference for that. Acts 7, 51 and 2, let's see. It says, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. So now He's talking to people who are physically circumcised, but notice their hearts and their ears same thing we were talking about before. They can't hear God. God speaks, and it's as though they just keep on walking. God said something to them, but they're not listening to God. You are just like your ancestors. In other words, this is generational. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a, a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. So we just noticed that what happened after that. Stephen was stoned, killed, executed by this mob. Terrible. But see what he said prior to that. It just is fitting for what we see about Israel. Right? They would need to be believers in order to execute his holy purposes. Just like it says, 
God is the spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So in the same way for Israel, they needed to be saved. Those who believe in the Messiah and they were not. Many of them had gotten away from the substitutional sacrifices and putting their faith and trust in that. Instead, they put their faith and trust in the law. Something that was not spiritual, but something that was for them to do. Point D, in other words, what then, what the people of Israel, and this is a quote, right? And this comes from Romans 11 and 7. What then, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly by keeping the law, being very meticulous, trying to show God that they're somehow good, uh, trying to erase the bad news by, by just keeping the law, they did not obtain. They can't get it. They're barking up the wrong tree. You can't be saved by keeping the law. It's not by works, and it never was. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Notice, that's Romans. That's in our context right there. So this is important information for us to know Israel's failure. They refused grace. And this is what, when we talk about grace, we know that it cannot be of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Point E. Or in still other words, let's say it another way, quote, they were broken off because of unbelief. We're getting, that's in our context too, which we haven't gotten to yet. In four verses, we will. They were broken off because of unbelief. He's talking about those branches that were part of Israel. They had the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they refused to follow through with believing in Christ. Point F, to drive home your point, Paul, let's just keep going. Paul is doing a great job illustrating this for us. Quote, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Romans 9, 6. The nail on the coffin. That's it right there. Well, they all speak to this point. Yeah, you, you're, you're descended from Israel, but you don't, you, you have the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you have not believed in the God of Israel. You've not trusted the matter of your soul's salvation to him. You rather trust it to the law, which is the minister of death. Point G, Israel was a new racial creation designed to take a spiritual message to the world. The good news, that is the gospel. For this task, they needed to be spiritual first. Hence, their failure. As we have already read, Paul says, My harsh desire and prayer to God is that the Israelites may be saved. It's for Israel. And they, Paul recognized that they were lost. So what does Paul do? He prays for their salvation. We do, we do as well. We want all to be saved, right? It is our job to be ambassadors for Christ. doesn't matter who's in front of us, whether they are Jew or Gentile. We want to bring the gospel. Uh, it is not just down here having fun with people. Our objective behind all of that may be that we might be able to save some. Yeah. So 
we know the church, this is point H, is made up only if we look at the church in contrast to all of this, which is different from Israel in this way. You can't be in a church if you're not a believer. Jesus said it this way, my, my prayer is not for them alone, them, the disciples. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. So we're believers. We trust, right? He's not just praying for people who half believe or uh, trust in themselves and their works, or, but they really don't believe. No, Jesus said, who believe in me. And, and that also reminds me of what he says in John, literally 16, where he says this. This is verse um, 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Look at this. Nine, about sin, because people do not believe in me. Right? This, is a, this is an important part when it comes to our reconciliation. This is the same thing Jesus said about the church. He says, I'm praying not for the world here, but for those who will believe in me through their message. Notice, it's believe in him, trust in Christ. Also, Ephesians 3, 6 bears this out, that only believers are in the church, only believers. So 3, 6 says, the mystery, even though we're not talking about salvation per se, notice, it is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, notice, it's through the gospel. It is not, uh, you can't go around the gospel. you got to go through it. You have to believe. The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. This is a new body, as we already saw in chapter 2. And sharers together in the promise in, notice, in Christ Jesus. This promise in Christ Jesus is for us, specifically in the church. So it's... It's, a, it's unique. It's a unique calling that we have. And we're believers. The only way we can fulfill it is if we are believers. And we understand grace. And we're able to preach the gospel uh, to the world. The true gospel, which is not one where those who can keep this law or whatever we consider law is going to be saved. Point I, that gets right to the point. The church, oh, I know it's, I'm running out of time. The church is flirting with Israel's failure. But how? By propagating the same gospel Israel espoused. A gospel that is by, works of, by the works of the law redesigned. Now, we already know from Romans, right? Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So you are not going to be able to change that verse. There's no wiggle room there. All right? That verse says unequivocally, unashamedly, shockingly, that you cannot have a relationship with God, you cannot be saved by keeping 
the law. Now that's hard to understand because people say, well, wait, wait a minute. Isn't the law good? Doesn't the law say that God wants us to do this and do that? Yes, but it does not give us, no one can keep the law and be justified. We're dead. There's none righteous. And it's because of the sin nature. So, I will say to you, this is, this is where, when I say the church is flirting with Israel's failure. People, the people in the church, there are two kinds. There are people who have become believers, and somehow they have been persuaded to believe that salvation is by some works that you have to do. There have been people who say that in the church. Whether they are saved or, or not, that is up to God. He can see their heart. But I can tell you, there are people in the church speaking a gospel that is that you must have works. They talk about you can lose your salvation, and if you don't maintain a certain standard of righteousness, then obviously maybe you weren't saved in the first place. When salvation <laughs> tells us that we don't have any righteousness, and the only way we can be saved is not by works. Not by works done in righteousness, not by any works whatsoever. So we can't look at people's righteousness and say, oh, you're probably saved and you're probably not. You can't if salvation is not by works. What, what, what are we, what, how, how, have we missed this whole thought? Have we left this thought aside by... Uh, telling God, okay, we can, we can judge people based on their works. When God says, no, you can't. Salvation is not by works. Not by works done in righteousness. So, this is a danger. This, this is Israel's failure. They turned from animal sacrifices, which was depicting their belief in the Messiah. They turned that into a ritual. And then they adopted salvation by keeping the law, being justified by, by the works of the law. People today are doing the same thing. So point J is beware. Watch out for their characteristic appeals. I'll read them. Philippians 3, 18 and 19 is the first passage. And we'll coming to a close here. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemy of the cross of Christ? Well, that's about salvation. Well, how can they live as an enemy of the cross of Christ? And be a, and Paul's so upset about these people. Uh He's with tears. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Notice where their mind is on. Earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what should our minds be on? Things that are in heaven. That's what we should be doing. But what are these people doing? Their mind is on earthly things things. What a shame. What a shame. And then we're going to close with Romans. I hate to close on these negative warning notes, but uh, I think it's appropriate 
for this, since we are dealing with uh, Israel's failure. Romans chapter 16, 17 and 18 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. I could go on. I definitely have some comments about that. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. So what we want to do is make sure that we maintain the grace of our God, which is the only way anybody can be saved. So it is important that we maintain the standard, no works, just like God said. Salvation is eternal. It is not temporary. It is permanent. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It is simply said. So we, we will uh, have to conclude today. We'll come back next week. We'll continue this thought. Uh, I will pause to see if there are any, probably we got time for one question. I will pause. The floor is open. So when we say, so what the way we see Israel is specific because Israel, God had something very special in mind for them. So he created a nation and this nation was to, you know, have its role in the world. But we do see there are pivotal players in, uh, in history. And we could go back to the pre-flood era. We could go to other, uh, I'm sure there were believers uh, prior to uh, the call of Abraham. But the function of Israel is unique in the world. It, is, it stands apart from all other ways that God communicated. As we said, salvation was not foreign to this world. People were being saved from the very beginning. God the Holy Spirit was working in believers from the very beginning. Uh, but God now has the special purpose in mind for the nation Israel. Remember, through, through the nation, we also have uh, Christ coming into the world. And that is so pivotal, not only for the salvation plan, but for us who are conform predestined to be conformed to the very image of Christ. So, so there's... A very special purpose, and, and no, God does not have or hold up um, that title for anyone other than Israel, Christ, and the church.
So and you could look in the Bible, and yes, there were holy people. Noah was righteous. Noah was. He had, you could say if there was somebody to mention, it would be Noah, right? Because he, he had a very special purpose, but he does not even um, count in terms of uh, what God, when it says, for those he foreknew. It doesn't say Noah is foreknown. doesn't say anything like that about it. So did God know that all those things would exist? Sure, about the flood, all that. Sure, he did. But did, did he say that they were foreknown and predestined? No, he does not. So this is very special, I would say. So they're special and very special. <laughs> we should probably categorize it that way. And those who are very special get this type of calling uh, on their lives. So I'll, I'll pause, Bill. Other follow-ups? Uh, and, and we will have to close. Ah, but thanks for that question. That's a certainly good question because we, you know, when we think about hum the landscape of human history, um, that we don't want to forget that, yeah, a lot happened early before Israel even came on the scene. But we're going to have to stop at this point. We'll continue this thought next week. There are plenty more verses ahead of us. So let's bow our heads and we'll close. Thank you, Father. We thank you for our special calling, the church, in which the time we, we now live in this very special age. Thank you for those who have called in. We pray as we continue uh, our journey in Romans that you will continue to give us wisdom as we focus our attention on what you would have us know and how we would understand our calling in Christ. We thank you for those who have joined, and we again pray as we will be uh, having services this week for uh, Lenora Sneed. We we're asking for your prayers, and uh, for not only for our services, but for the family in particular. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.